Welcome to Philosophy AU, the show where we analyse and explore the modern world through a philosophical lens. My name is Lyndon, I'm studying artificial intelligence and I'm interested in the design of efficient systems for virtuous outcomes. I'm Josh, I'm studying psychology and I'm interested in the generation of progress that alleviates suffering in the world. We believe in the power of knowledge and the role it plays in creating a better world. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, welcome back. <clears throat> we are back again, back um, in Geelong, back in lockdown. I almost said don't mention where we are because <laughs> Cause, but this is... Oh, yeah, because where I am. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm still within my 5K radius. Yeah, well, it's going to play off the whole intimate partner thing. We, mm. could, we can nearly pass. Uh, or what's the compassion and care? Like you mm. come down to, yeah, some <laughs> yeah. compassion and care. You need some care. Um, yeah, cool. So, uh, I don't know. I don't have really many updates for myself. I've been pretty chill this last week. Obviously, you know, we all just went into lockdown on, what was it, Thursday or Wednesday or something? Yeah. Well, uh, well it was announced Thursday. That's right. Yeah. So, it was announced so, Thursday. Yeah. Went in to lockdown midnight that night because I was speaking to someone at work and just like, man, just call a statewide public holiday. It's like going mm. into lockdown yeah, yeah. on the Friday. Oh, yeah. So many people are just clocked just out. Doing nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was definitely my experience. Um, but I don't know. For me, like it largely doesn't change anything. Uh, I don't know. Like what? Go to the shops, go to work from home exercise that's most of my days anyway so yeah it's been pretty chill yeah no that's cool um how is the preparations for the new job coming along do we need to charge a laptop by the way uh yeah i'll get yeah, a charger do that. <laughs> um yeah good so i'm in my well next week will be my last week in the current job so um it's very exciting it'll just largely a lot of handover stuff at the moment and uh, just making sure that everything goes smoothly for the people that I support. Um, and then I'll have a bit of a week break and we'll see, I don't know, see what, see what happens then. Hopefully, hopefully I'm actually able to make use of that week, not just, uh, not just sit at home like I'm doing at the moment. Um, I'll, I'll jump in there because <laughs> struggling to fill airtime. Um, what? How will you spend your week off? What will you? So obviously you might be stuck sitting at home, but yeah. How would you ideally like to spend that time? Um, yeah, I'll probably just be doing lots of reading, playing music, and uh, lots of sleeping. In I don't know, like I, I think maybe sometimes like you underestimate the the kind of like insidious stress that just having a schedule um, puts onto you. Like by no means am I, um, you know, busting it at the brims with stress, but um, there there is just something to that. Oh, having no schedule is kind of nice and like that is somewhat of a holiday in itself of just being able to go ad hoc about your day. Yeah. I think, I would largely agree with you. Um, yeah, there's such that like, uh, well, it's kind of like when you, you know, you finish a, a trimester at uni or yeah, you've got a, a job um, break between jobs or yeah, people start retirement. Just like the freedom 
and just like working for mm. yourself. There's, there's all kinds of, um, yeah, additions of this in life, I guess. Um, mm. But yeah, I think a common report from people who have experienced that, I would say, um, is just that they would struggle to go back. It's like mm. one, once you once you've realised how, yeah, insidious the schedule is, the mm. um, just you know the daily grind for whatever it, you know it might be. I'm not just speaking about this in the, the purely work sense, but mm. something that seems um, necessary, but then once it's removed, it's yeah, it's really difficult to go back to. Um, mm. Yeah, maybe I'm not making a really great point there, but yeah, it just makes me, this is something I think about a lot um, because I really enjoy, like obviously everyone values their free time and freedom, Mm. um, but it's probably like a daily thing for me where I wake up and think, oh, it frustrates me that I have to be somewhere at a certain time. And Mm. like, I personally know that I can work so much better yeah. than the constraints of the nine to five. Yeah. Like I can, I feel like I can be pretty productive from, um, you know, say 7am to 7pm. Mm. Um, like last night I was still just tinkering and doing some programming till uh, just after 10, which was probably a bit late for Ooh. me. <laughs> um and yeah, I'd been pretty much productive that entire day because I had that ability due to lockdown yeah. to like go out and have a walk for 15 yeah. minutes. Yeah. Were, were you sort of getting out that like, are you the type of person that um, you don't want to take long holidays? Is that what you're sort of getting? Because I, <clears throat> I don't really like... You know, with my annual leave, right, I wouldn't take, like, say, three weeks off in January. I would rather take, like, a day off every couple of weeks because, you know, that three week taking three weeks off, then it's just so, so hard to, like, start up that engine again rather than just having, like, these little breaks that break up your weeks every now and then. Yeah, I think I was probably making... I didn't signpost my point very well, but I was making point that, I guess, even maybe unrelated to that to some degree but Hmm. i'd almost rather just like trade off all my annual like let's say half my annual leave a year like half my annual leave for a year Hmm. just for the ability to work like properly flexibly yeah and i know that doesn't work for most businesses because you need that overlap in time of of people with other organizations and employees of your own organization but yeah i think that's i guess something that has begun to attract me more and more to the entrepreneurial sort of side of things and Mm. i don't know like about say being a founder of just yeah like freeing yourself from that and yeah just like not being crammed into this box of nine to five which just because like I don't know, I think of like all the most productive people that say I've like read about in history or whenever. It's like so many of them would just say go for a long walk if they were yeah. stuck on a problem or like take a nap or mm. 
And I just think the modern work environment isn't conducive to that. And I'm sorry, I've completely derailed this conversation early. But <laughs> nah. uh, So, like, do you recommend going there, though? Because, I mean, that's a lot of what Cal Newport idealizes about is, like, getting to a world of work where that is the case, where it's not all about this, like, low-friction communication and just, like, constant open communication and... Uh, like a really cool thing that he said in one of his recent interviews was when you take away friction, weird things tend to happen. Um, and he was like obviously talking about communication there and just the ease at which like email and Slack and Teams and Skype, etc., has allowed us just this instantaneous low friction communication where there's, yeah, just, there's just that classic like no barrier to entry and no filtering mechanism where it's like if it thinks if you think it's a good idea you'll just send that message because because there is no of that minimal startup energy and no friction to be able to uh calibrate like whether it's worth spending your resources on this message um but yeah like do you think like we're getting there hopefully to the place um like, I would like to hope so. And I guess, you know, you hear, say, Cal Newport or, or other people um, speak about this topics and it gives you some kind of, like, global optimism that we will get there. But I would say I'm, I'm pretty locally pessimistic about <laughs> it. Like, yeah. just based... Because every, every company, I guess, has incentives to, you know, maximize profits and do mm. things like that and it's not to say that those incentives can't be overcome but yeah i don't know i think like you i guess you know i think you understand this part of my brain mm. quite well and i just have oh man i'm blanking on the word what's that word when like things are made and they're not actually kind of like say rules and arbitrary mm. okay that's sorry that's the word i was looking for yeah the nine to five is so yeah. arbitrary like it's yeah. not linked to anything to do with human productivity it's not linked <coughs> to really anything of substance where we could say this is good for the individual or mm. this is good for the company mm. it's just a third of the day like that's basically what it kind of evolved from at least in my understanding mm. it's like people need a third of the day to sleep about a third of the day to spend on themselves and a third mm. of the day to spend at work yeah i mean you say like it's not necessarily oh i don't know what word you use but you could say like it's not optimized for productivity it's not optimized for the bottom line it's not optimized for the organization but how about this perhaps it could be maybe not optimized but perhaps it could be good just for society at large to have that sort of just like blanket structure of the day so that everything can almost fall and slot in around that yeah i think that's there's probably like some truth to that um but yeah i'm just i don't know i guess and economists go back and forth on these topics and the validity of um information like this but i guess you look at say the scandinavian kind of countries and their, mm. their four-day work weeks or yeah. their other things like that and they are just different from the country we live within so it's not this mm. kind of like 
can't point at a single data point like, oh, look, this single thing makes them better. Mm. We should do this because we know a culture um, and a sort of a nation state is made up of innumerable variables. Mm. Um, But, yeah, I just think I'm a little... I'm a little bearish on the typical nine to five. Mm. Um, yeah. I think more focused effort typically, if you condense the work day, I think you'd find most people still get the same amount done. Yeah. Um, I think it Definitely. would trim, trim our superfluous, yeah, stuff. Yeah. And like, because we do socialize with people at work, we waste time at work, yeah. quote unquote, waste time at work. But I just think maybe rather than being forced to like socialize with people at work, mm. just just trim that and then socialize <laughs> yeah. with like people who you really want to socialize yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. It's, it's not one or the other. Like there's still obviously some advantages to the to the low optionality of mm. um, socializing with people at work. But yeah. The final point I'll say is the nine to five is good but it bleeds over. Like it's just, it's getting mm. stretched. Like it, it was nine to five mm. and now with low friction communication, yeah, there's work pretty much being done by people the entire time that Around they're the awake. Yeah. Yeah. I'm big on that. Like what you just said that like, you know, all these say managerial productivity, team building efforts and initiatives like, I'm always just like fucking just let us knock off an hour earlier. Like don't worry about don't worry about the team lunch that takes up an hour of lunch. Just let me leave one hour early and do exactly what I want with my own time. <laughs> yeah. Like I honestly think for everyone that would be the guess the best case. Um but it's just, you know, they've got a they have got to hold off their own obsolescence often and uh you know, make their own um their own job seem necessary it's really tricky i yeah massively in agreement with you there and i'm not even going to jump into that rabbit hole um but a related point i think is say a company like google um and they were kind of like famous for i can't remember what the exact amount of time is but a substantial amount of time you could use in your working week to work on a personal project. Yeah. Um, maybe 15% or like whatever it was. Something like that. Um, and people will often say, oh, but like, you know, Google's wealthy enough to do, to do mm. that kind of thing. Mm. But it's, the thing is you never outgrow your constraints. Yeah. You, you never out, like Google still has shareholders that it needs to, yeah. um, be held accountable you know there's ceos there's bosses there's managers i I don't think you yeah you actually ever free yourself from constraints you just work out better systems of dealing with constraints Mm. and some systems of dealing with constraints make various constraints obsolete Mm. um just on that google point I read a book by, I think he was there, like, I forget his exact title, but essentially like the head HR guy, but it was a lot more of like a sexy title. It was like people and culture. His name was Laszlo Bock or Block. 
Um, anyway, he wrote a book called Work Rules. It's all about <clears throat> Google and the innovations that he did. And he worked there for like 11 years and then moved on. Um, and he would, I think he was like one of the innovators of that exact thing where they, you know, gave everyone like 20% of their time of their work week to do their own projects and then they turn into big Google innovations. So, um, yeah, shout out to that book. That was really good. It was just, he went through, it was Google specific. So he went through all of, um, all of like the innovations around, I guess like technically HR, but more around like systems and culture and innovations. And here's, here's a cool one that you'll like. Um, so Google's like notorious for not having equal pay. Um, yep. not like gender. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just pay based on your worth and like they're very ex- or, like linked to role is maybe a good mm. way of thinking about it. It's like not every mm. Google software engineer yeah. gets paid the same, even if they're at the same say yeah. level. Yeah, exactly. So it's, um, they're very explicit and unapolog- unapologetic about that. So that they're like, if you're worth $10 million, we'll pay you that. Um, so just really cool, like different innovations around that. But yeah, sorry. One thing that he did talk about in the book was that exact point of like people say Google can do all these innovations because they're such a large company. But um, there was a comparison with like this sort of mum and pop um, supermarket company that was doing all the exact same things and they were like, say like one hundredth of the size. Um, so yeah, it was just sort of speaking to that point that, you know, you can, it's not going to be a, a detriment. It That could very well be the catalyst to help you as a company who knows yeah it's i guess we're all we're all guilty of this um to some extent but we we change whether we think is something a cause or an effect depending whether we're in favor of it Mm. and it's like if you want to if you want to justify and rationalize your current say way of running a company you'll say it's that's an effect of google's success yeah. As opposed to a cause. It's all confirmation bias. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, let me ask you like one one follow-up question on that because I think it's kind of interesting. Um, how do you think that concept of unequal pay that we just spoke about mm. relates to um, previous sort of conversations and like lines of your own thinking relating to meritocracy? Because yeah. Silicon Valley, I guess, is... Uh, almost infamous for its ardent quest for meritocracy. Mm. And that's why it's often pointed out as one of the most, say, like unequal places in the world. Mm. But at least I would say in my perception, Silicon Valley philosophy Mm. and just like tech industry and sort of all the the, uh, related fields and domains of thinking from mm. that um it's yeah it's very aimed at being meritocratic mm. yeah i mean I, I i do like it like i would personally i would think i would flourish in an environment like that being so um meritorious in my own thinking and just like buying in so heavily to that because I think there's like a couple of different ways to think about the meritocracy. I think that, and you know, concepts in general, like you can, 
buy into it on a personal level, but then, you know, there's sort of that like categorical imperative way of thinking where should everyone be living by that? Or, or maybe it's um, individual versus society at large scale wise. Like I think personally it's a good motivator. Um, I think people should personally be motivated by a meritocracy or a meritorious system. But then I think perhaps like at large, there could probably be like some systems level changes in place where, um, where it, there's some sort of safety net for people that don't, you know, start at the starting line, so to speak. Um, but on a personal level, I think it, it does make sense for me. And, um, and I think that's okay, even understand, like, I don't see that as a contradiction. Like, I still understand that there are things with the meritocracy as a whole that don't make sense. And, you know, you need to keep it out of, like, the moral sphere of thinking. Um, but I don't think that should, like, stop you operating in sort of, like, a meritorious way. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. No, that does. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um what do that, what do you reckon like on an organization level um yeah like i i am i would say strongly attracted to the idea of um meritocratic systems um possibly because i'm you know of a similar opinion to you you know and maybe it's because you know i'm a heterosexual white male that I do want that I'm in favor of those things. And I'm, yeah, I'm not actually saying that tongue in cheek. Like mm. I, I am being genuine. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, but I think just like in principle, it's hard to argue with a meritocratic system, like yeah. irrespective of one's, um, gender, ethnicity, ethnicity, um, lived experience, whatever. Um, mm. yeah. If I was, if I was to project forward and that's, I guess, take, take myself out of it. If I was to imagine 200 years in the future, I would think a more meritocratic society would be better for at least the average, like probably the majority. Mm. Um, and that's not something that I would experience, but that's probably still something that I hope human civilization moves towards. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. I just think that like one of the, one of the most, um, I don't know, maybe like universal or a deeper ubiquitous part of human nature just seems to be like following incentives and that, you know, that speaks to what the meritocracy, um, you know, allows for is uh, giving people incentives and I don't, I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon, but yeah, I just think like with it, within a meritocracy, there needs to be like separate conversations around um, moral judgments versus like productivity. Yeah. Yeah. I would say I would, I could develop a pretty rough frame. Um, I think with only three components, um, and what I'm getting, like, say, for, like, a pretty ideal society, 
um, I would say you'd want it to be meritocratic. Mm. But I think you want, as you said, some kind of safety net for mm. failure. Like it's however you, um, or not failure, yeah, not like... Um, it's a bad cut, bad luck kind of thing. It, yeah, well, like, I guess that I'd, I'd still consider that, say, like, failure like in the sense of like failure to excel in the meritocratic right. society just you know if you have a bad hand dealt to you or you double down on an idea that proved to be unuseful there's still some kind of safety net there for you because probably overall like you know human civilization benefited from like your exploration of something that proved to be at least locally non-useful. Mm. Does that make sense? You're saying like you've got to you've got to work through the failures to find the successes. Yeah, kind of to some extent. Like, um, I guess like in a capitalist system, say we it is relatively meritocratic in the sense that, um, like wealth flows to the people who produce value. Mm that's an imperfect description of a capitalist mm. system, but yeah. roughly. Um, and it's, you know, if you make uh, a kitchen chair that is categorically different to the, you know, modern version of kitchen chairs, like kitchen table chairs, um, and it's categorically different, but it's not actually um, better than mm. the current thing. It's like, you shouldn't be rewarded for that. Yeah. In, okay. And like, and a capitalist system doesn't reward you for that. Mm. What I'm saying is, I think in some kind of idealized meritocratic system, there should be some reward for that or like some kind of oh, compensation for that. Yeah. I think I would consider that under the safety net kind of umbrella because you still have explored some portion of, you know, solution space. You've mapped it out a little bit. You've tried something. Odds are in decades or centuries, some of what you've done is utilized in a different mm. domain. And this is, um, I guess this is a popular trend amongst quote unquote progress studies. Mm. Of just like ideas are borrowed from one domain and implemented in another. Yeah. And they may have been a failure in the original domain and then mm. turned into success in a different one. Um, so I think, yeah, that that's all something like uh, that I think an idealized society would have. So we've got, it's meritocratic, mm. there's safety nets for both, um, yeah, failed exploration of ideas or exploration of failed ideas and some kind of like unfortunate life circumstances or other hindrances that one would face. Mm. And the third component is someone's productivity isn't inherently linked to their moral worth. Mm. Like, I think those three things are a pretty good starting block. Although, obviously, like, building a society from there is wildly complex, but that's mm. that's how I vision the future, at least. Yeah, in Lindensville. Um, what came up there was, like, uh, not just having one um, one reward for... Yeah, or not basing the complete incentive on just the outcome because then people like find ways to exploit it, you know, which is, I guess, what you're getting at with allowing like some reward to flow to the people that 
you know, still fail because there's still maybe like some good second order effect or some other externalities that might um, come about because of it that aren't immediately apparent. Um, and tell me if this makes sense to you, like the, the analogy with like where people are trying to go with um, academic incentives. Yeah. 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 I think you're on the money there. So like what's, what is exact, what is exactly the issue there? Is it tying the incentive to some sort of malaligned outcome rather than intention? Yeah. Like I would, and this is one of those things where it's like you say something while also saying nothing. I think (laughs) the issue is misaligned incentives. Mm. Um, That tells us nothing really about solving the problem. Yeah. But I guess that's what the the conceptual issue is for me. Um, yeah, I think it has something to do with reward processes. So, um, yeah, I guess like there's the... in, And this is kind of ties into like the rich getting richer sort mm. of concept as well. It's like it's, it's really easy for... Um, you know, the, the already like moderately successful company to just start producing the same product, product like slightly better, slightly yeah. cheaper and capture more and more of the market share mm. while the other company is doing R&D to try and vastly improve the product. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, you get this sort of flow of reward and resources to institutes, companies, individuals, organizations who are short-term optimizers, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. It's like we were just speaking about before about, um, yeah, just trying to optimize for the long run a bit more. Hmm. But yeah, to, uh, just to your point, I think you're exactly right on those two phenomenons. Like what's mm. going on in science is the the short-term optimization of science is to just do some slightly tweaked variation of um, an already extremely well-cited idea and strand of research. Yeah. Just fill in, you know, some bit of knowledge space 0.1% across from what we already pretty well understand. Yeah. As opposed to just exploring the entire side the other side of the map like mm. just jumping to somewhere just categorically different mm. and there's also like that silo effect where it's just concentrated to you know all the people siding each other because they're all just focusing on the same thing and they're all just rising boats on the same tide versus like that one pioneer out there on his own creating something from scratch just like can't access any resources because they're just on their own and um you know not like in that nourishing ground of everything that's already established. Yeah. And it's, it's the same kind of um, phenomenon again, goes on in echo chambers. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're just, you know, there's a a popular conversation going on over there. You're sort of locked out of it. And the only way Mm. to get involved with Mm. the people is go and have, start having the same conversation and talking to the same people. And yeah. um, These strong, and reinforcing feedback loops, um, I think, go on, yeah, all across society. 
Mm. Yeah, something to think about. Mm. Yeah, all good stuff. Um, we can jump into it. I didn't really have an insight yeah. of the week, if you like. Yeah, sounds good. Um, okay, yeah. So today we're just going to, I guess, go over some of our maybe more notable or influential just concepts. I don't know how we might want to define a concept, but um, something that has been influential and maybe something just slightly more, just slightly more abstract um, that can perhaps be like applied to many different areas. Um, And I guess, you know, perhaps something that not everyone would hear in their day-to-day, their day-to-day dealings. Um, Yeah. Is there any, any more explanatory power that you want to add there? Yeah. um, Like I would literally just classify these things as like things I think about and things that I use to make sense of the world or um, guide my action. So, yeah, some of them I would say are maybe like quite niche. They're not, Mm. you know, these large mental models that you can implement in all domains of your life. Um, But, yeah, I think we'll just, we'll have a conversation about it and you've probably already heard us talk about some... Mm. concepts that we draw on already like if you've been a a regular listener to this podcast you'll no doubt recognize that there's many themes that josh and i come back to um yeah today we sort of we just thought we might make some of those themes more explicit rather than implicit and just Mm. draw them into focused attention yeah And and i just also feel like perhaps like last episode was very waffly and, you know, we want to add in some, like, solidified stuff as well, so... Okay. You should probably do most of the talk from this <laughs> point then. <laughs> oh, shit. All right. So, maybe I'll kick it off. So, mine was... My first one that I really like was is procedural fairness. Um, you heard of this one before? No. Oh, really? You haven't done psych when I won then? No. So, the first time I genuinely heard about this was in my psych degree, um, which is surprising because it's quite a baller concept. Um, in short, it's essentially just that... Regardless of an outcome, people buy into the outcome if the process or the procedure is thought to be fair. So it has um, its roots in the uh, what is it in the courts in the legal system has roots in the legal system, and this is a very well established idea and concept with um, decades of research behind it. Um, just where you know whether people were found guilty or innocent or you know, got fined a large amount of money or a small amount of money, um, whatever variation on the actual outcome, uh, their subjective or personal opinion of whether that was right or wrong is very closely tied to how the actual process went. So there's a couple of like different tenets um, that come into it. So um, whether they were felt like their voice was heard um, or you know whether they felt like they didn't really uh, they didn't really get to express themselves in the process. Um, you know whether they felt like uh, the person was like biased or um, like impartial or biased. Um, that plays into it as well. Um, and I think like it it has been influential because. You know, like a lot of the time we want to just be like, all that matters is the outcome and just, especially perhaps like people like us that are a little bit more just like analytical minded and outcome oriented, like we want to 
focus so much on the right answer that we sort of forget about the process sometimes um, and just be like, uh, well, you know, even if, even if this isn't the nicest process to go through, uh, I'm still giving you a right, a right or more, a more accurate answer. Um, but perhaps it sort of pays to spend a little bit more time just making that process a better experience and, you know, like making sure the person feels heard and uh, making sure that you're giving it the right amount of time to make that decision, whatever it may be. Um, yeah, so I, th- I think it does like it can translate into different settings and different contexts. Um, yeah, just to be a bit more process and procedural oriented. Yeah, I really like this. Um, a few things come to mind. So, sounds very strongly related to um, it, like equality of opportunity as opposed to equality of outcome. Mm. Like that's, yeah, like the procedural fairness to me sounds almost synonymous to equality of opportunity. Mm, interesting. Um, yeah. I would say I'm not sure I completely agree with the characterization of um, an analytical mindset being linked to um, more of a focus on results. Mm. Um, Interesting. You are possibly correct there. At least, like I would say in probably like one of the central tenets of say like thinking probabilistically is the awareness that like even the most idealized process will Mm. sometimes result in Mm. um non-optimal outcomes yeah you know it's like you can do quote unquote the most rational thing Mm. and still through um uncontrolled variables which is why probably like probability is used because you can't control for all variables Mm. and because of that you can still do the most probable thing and end up with unideal outcomes Mm. so to me that kind of i at least try to remember that yeah um but yeah the other thing i was um thought about was how yeah this really is a feature of a well-functioning legal system um, and just systems in general. But, um, and I I know for the most part you share this opinion, um, but yeah, so like when um, Derek Chauvin was sort of like Mm. getting ready to say be on trial, um, like like lots of people talking about it's like, you know, he shouldn't even basically be able to defend himself. It's just like... It's decided we saw what he did, yeah. like put him to death effectively. And if you've got any, uh, if you have strong intuitions that what he did was wrong, then it should be no issue to offer him procedural fairness yeah, because exactly he will right. still be found to be wrong. And yeah. it will be a more convincing conviction mm. if he is offered procedural fairness. Yeah, yeah. I sort of went back and forth about that point of like, you know, defending um, defending people that so clearly seem to be wrong, but then yeah, had that exact realization that like, oh, they they should actually get the best strength of defense that they can. So then, when it is overturned, 
it is so clearly the right answer. Um, and then, yeah, to your point earlier, don't mistake good outcomes for good decisions. Is that yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. And vice versa. It's like, don't mistake um, good outcomes for good decision making and don't mistake poor outcomes for poor decision making. Mm. Like, and this is something Shane Parrish is very big in speaking mm. about is like the... I can't remember how exactly he phrases it, but I don't think it's exactly correct, but he puts it in the sense of um, like results are unrelated to the decision-making process. And Mm. that's the sentiment is there, but it's not quite correct. I don't think strong. Yeah. And I I could be like paraphrasing him incorrectly. So that's not um, a fault of, his but what i'm getting at is like there is a link between the decision making process and the outcomes you get mm. but um yeah on the margins you can get some really like iffy results either way mm. yeah yeah beautiful cool. cool um so the first one like i thought i'd mention is sort of like a group of three um i was gonna say like evolution and mm linked to that i would say is the concept um of babble and prune hmm. um some of my yeah as i've spoken about before um like a sequence of essays on less wrong that like one of my favorite collections of essays on there like i really like the site as a whole as you know um but that's that's some of the cream of the crop for me and babble and prune sort of speaks to the idea of Um, like generators and discriminators or the artist and the critic. Mm. And I would file all of these in the same folder, sort of like, yeah, evolution Mm. being one of those generator and discriminator processes. What's a babble? So babble is, babble is the generation sort of process. Mm. Um, The, say like the essays um, that... Uh, linked these terms or sort of like uh, defined these terms and like what they symbolize just sort of speaks about how yeah we have um, these uh, like vocabulary and sort of like word generating mechanisms in our brains and like Mm. that's sort of like what babies do is like they they babble and they they speak and it's just this this really pseudo random combination of yeah sounds and or or whatever like it it doesn't Mm. it's not actually linked to words necessarily but like the part of your brain that comes up with ideas is just pseudo randomly combining concepts and various pieces of information Mm. and that you know we might call that like the the subconscious Mm. and then the you know, the more um, higher order evolved sort of cognitive processes are the pruning aspects about, Mm. and that's a highly, um, it's like a filtering process. Yeah. And it's discriminating between good and bad and whether something is better or worse. And so between or in combination of babble mechanisms and prune mechanisms, we come to, pretty well optimized 
um, solutions for things. Hmm. And yeah, so evolution is an example of that. Like genes mutate and replicate, giving like a wide variety of um, potential sort of things. And then environmental constraints and Mm. selection processes are the pruning mechanisms in that. Mm. And so eventually you have the survival of Mm. a subset of the original set. Mm. And yeah, that's, again, generation and discrimination, babble and prune, artist critic, evolution. Like that, mm. they all fit the same uh, model for yeah. me. So on like a personal level, do you think that um, something must happen like temporally with age, right? Like there must be um, yes, some sort of change over time where the generation is a lot... Well, I know, like, with developmental, both, like, neurology and psychology, that that is the case. Well, more with neurology, right? Like, a large part of the growing brain is actually, like, the pruning brain is, like, just pruning, um, say, like, useless, um, you know, useless useless pieces and bits or things. Uh, um, but, yeah, does that... Do, do, like, do you see that? Does that happen over the lifespan more and more and like does that relationship change with how much like there's generation versus how much there's pruning yeah i would say yes um without having really strong pieces of evidence that i could point to um like on a mechanistic level at least but i think you are correct in highlighting one of the really strong ones is Mm. that there is a ton of generation um throughout the really early stages of development of a human um Mm. like in utero and then say like pre-adolescent and then it becomes very much like okay we've created so many neurological connections let's prune off the ones that aren't useful or as useful Mm. um i think so that's yeah speaking at that level i think we see this as um, like teenagers are quite experimental in mm. sort of a, there's a lot of behavioral babble, I would say. Yeah. yeah and then on. you start to prune away more and more and your identity begins to like crystallize around mm. a few, few sort of concepts or behaviors or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think, Possibly that trend continues too strongly and we are, we do say insufficient babble or Mm. um, generation as we age. Yeah. And uh, that's where like we're talking about like the psychedelics can definitely come into it. Yep. Um, And then another one that I don't know came to mind was like the, uh, I don't know if it came to your mind, but it's very much the same thing. It's just like burning off the dead wood. Yeah. Yeah definitely linked to the same um same sort of concepts but i really like those less wrong um essays because they there's like attempts at recommendations for like how to improve both because like we can get better outcomes in two ways you can have um a more prolific you know, like a babble generator mm. and a 
prune filter mm. that requires a higher standard. Yeah. But what I actually kind of like, say, the most about the essays is that it at least promotes the idea that it is predominantly a lack of babble as opposed to mm. insufficient pruning that um, is the hindrance for sort of progress. Um, and I think something else that's interesting about it is, say, I would say I'm probably, as a person, more of a pruner. Mm. And um, the author speaks about how like reading and podcasting and mm. like li- like consuming forms of information are actually sources of pseudo babble mm. and that's possibly why i say you're possibly the same mm. is that you're we are po- pros- uh, possibly lacking in the babble department somewhat so we we use some kind of um like crutch there and consume mm. information from other people and then use our own filtering system to determine, okay, we like that. Yes, I like that. So, like, what would it look like for us to for us to have more of that babble for anyone on a personal level? Um, well, I don't know exactly, say, what it might... Well, yeah, like, I would say there are definitely people who I know at least would just, like, say things without, like, thinking about them too much. Like that's mm. that's a more um, that is say like a stronger babble and a less uh, yeah like a reduced pruning function. Or does it does it just depend on the context by which like you're talking about it? And like, could it be the case that like a more a someone with a stronger say like affinity to the babble would be a traveler also? Like, could that be considered the same thing? Whereas, like, you know, the pruning could be, um, you know, someone perhaps just, like, staying and trying to optimise what they're currently doing. Yeah, possibly. Um, yeah, context is obviously, like, always important. Um, I, don't, I don't know, like, how it necessarily always embodies itself. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I just think... Overall, it's an interesting thing to think about in the sense that you do, you can optimize yourself, you know, the success of your company, you know, whatever, Mm. just by generating more possible outcomes and then better selecting between those possible outcomes. Yeah. Like there's, um, I guess like there's strong parallels to the creativity debate or maybe not debate, but discussion there where like um you know a lot of people have the a lot of people are of the are of the opinion that like creativity is just a numbers game and um you know like the the more possible um the more surface area there is the more possible fertile ground there is for quality stuff um and then it's just about that filtering mechanism being good enough as well yeah, I just think like it's not that. That's why I like this whole babble and prune concept is because I don't think it's that whole numbers game thing completely captures the. Mm. It's like yes, if you if you paint a hundred paintings as opposed to one, odds are one of the hundred is going to be say a masterpiece. Mm. Like that is playing the numbers game. But 
if you have a strong prune, like a sufficiently strong prune filter, say, you might be someone who completes 10 paintings, but Mm. you recognize the 10th one is actually Mm. of higher standard than the rest and you put more resources into that. Interesting. You're not sort of going, okay, (laughs) done with the 10th, I'm going to move on to the 11th because I've got to get through the numbers. It's this, well, Babylon Prune, again, just stems back to it's a quantity versus a quality thing. It's it's a really wide frame to look at the entire world through. But yeah, like it's, this is something we go through in basically all human domains is just like there is a quantity quality trade-off and there is some mm. kind of optimal spot in that two-dimensional space. Mm. And like a maybe like a really important piece of it is just deciding when the right moment to prune is, like you just said then. like Yep. Um, because, you know, like a, a salient parallel is coming up of the, you know, the classic fitness putting on weight and the cut bulk situation um, where it could be really quite important, like deciding exactly what the right time is to start that pruning process. Yeah. Do you mind if I go to the bathroom? Yeah, no, perfect. I need to go as well. I thought you'd never ask. That's okay. Okay. And uh, next one. So... Uh, the next one is, uh, I guess you could just call it the remembering self versus experiencing self. <laughs> um, so this was, I don't know if it was Kahneman and Tversky or just Kahneman in his earlier years. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think, it, I thought it was just Kahneman to be honest, but. Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah, so Daniel Kahneman who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow and just recently brought out his latest book called Noise. Um I'm currently working through but yeah so he in his early years did research on the experiencing self and the remembering self and um, to to what I understand of it this is kind of just speaking about uh, I guess like maybe like optimizing your life around these two different conceptions of um value judgments around your life and yourself. So he put in like two categories that he worked with, which was the experiencing self, which was, I guess you might say like yourself in the moment. Um, and maybe like what would be, what would optimize for that self, the experiencing self. And then the other side of it was, uh, the remembering self. So, um, you know, what would be optimized for, you remembering on that experience um and yeah there's i think there's a lot of cool different aspects to thinking about that um you know things like pain just phenomenons that are like one way in the present but then reflected back on they with you know with hindsight with the benefit of hindsight they can almost flip into the like diametrically opposed experience like something that can be uh, like experientially negative, seemingly like in the moment negative, and then reflecting back on that for the remembering self. It's like, oh, you know, hang on, that was uh, perhaps like perhaps it's a bit of reframing as well, but like that was actually quite a positive experience. Um, so I think, yeah, this was quite a good um, concept to learn about for myself, and because I. 
There is also um, a... I forget where I heard this, but I jumped on board with the opinion that like there's too much weight given to the deathbed people to that experience. You know, like there's a common, um, you know, you want to be on your deathbed and like be proud of that, like of all those moments. Um, and I think it makes sense that like maybe people just put too much weight into that that one moment and that one experience. Um, but like there's all these other experiences that maybe your deathbed person wouldn't be happy with but like who's to say that that outweighs any of the other experiences if that makes sense but sort of just speaking to the idea that there are like different selves and you know quote-unquote selves to optimize for and you know i guess you'd probably just want to think about and calibrate which selves you're optimizing for yeah i um I actually use a similar model, but in the opposite direction, I think. Hmm. So, and I guess this links in with um, like flow or, or something like that to some extent. But I guess what I feel is when I feel most comfortable, most happy, there is some kind of connection between... Or maybe I'll put it this way. One of the things that makes me feel good in the present is doing things that I believe will make me feel good in the future. Mm. And there's some kind of perfect overlap at various times when you're doing yeah, yeah behaviors that feel good and feel like they'll produce rewards. Mm. And yeah, so I, I guess that's like kind of the... Like, that's the experiencing and the prospective self, mm. we could say. But yeah. I, I, do re- I really do like this frame. Um, and I do reflect on the, yeah, the remembering self to some extent. But I think I'm a little bit more forward-facing, at least in my mm. use of it. That would seem like a really good and... Um <clears throat> a really useful like North Star is just to make that alignment between the experiencing self or the the well-being and pleasure of the experiencing self and the well-being and pleasure of the perspective or and and or remembering self almost like one to one because you know we always talk about like I guess like wanting to find that fine line between optimizing for your future selves and your now self without giving without sacrificing pleasure in the moment or like how much pleasure can you sacrifice in the moment to optimize for your future and like just trying to like shorten that distance as much as possible or like find that equilibrium i think is like a positive and good north star and probably one that i connect to as well yeah no i would agree there um i don't have tons more to add but yeah it is really interesting how you speak about Yes, something such as the experience of pain is negative for the experiencing self, but typically um, some kind of virtue for the remembering self. Mm. And yeah, like um, I think this is a phenomenon that you kind of run into when, uh, say like people ask for book recommendations, Mm. which is something I know you're familiar with. Mm. People ask me, 
Yeah, like, because obviously we both sort of read a few books. Um, people ask us for book recommendations and I tend to, through the lens of the remembering self, mm. recommend things such as The Blank Slate or mm. Behave or mm. The Vision of the Anointed. Mm. Yet, like, at the time, like, I remember The Blank Slate and Behave especially. They were, like, they were slogs and Ooh, I yeah. was just like, oh, my God. Like, I am... Mm in some ways like so over this book and all like so tired of this point being elaborated extensively and I'm only on page 150 of 750. Mm. But that boredom, laboriousness kind of element of it, that is what made it such a salient feature for my remembering self. Mm. And I would say the remembering self is more strongly linked to knowledge, I think. Like, obviously, knowledge needs to be, like, recalled. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that what I'm getting at is I think there is something important for kind of the experience of pain and knowledge acquired through yeah, effort slash pain that mm. makes it more accessible to you in the future. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's probably, it's probably the case that like, um, you know, if, if it is such an easy or pleasant experience, um, I don't know, like, yeah, it, it might be, there might be something inherent about displeasure that solidifies it in memory more. You know, like the uh, the the mismatch between like um, you know what you would pay to get out of pain versus what you would pay for the same amount of pleasure. Like p- pain and discomfort is just a, a much more like salient experience on a lot of different levels. Yeah, I'd say probably like there's something um, that there would be evolutionary explanations for this. It's like mm. if something is painful, you should like be at the neurochemical level, it should be reinforced that this was Mm. an experience that you should remember and therefore be less likely to run into it again. Um, Probably the same is true for for pleasure though, um, to some extent. And it just kind of makes me think that possibly it's kind of say like, um, do you remember kind of like how oxytocin is... Mm like people often used to say oxytocin was yeah. the like the love neurotransmitter yeah. but it also makes us like more protective and mm. say more violent. tribal yeah more tribal that's a good way of putting it um it almost just like exaggerates um responses given the sort of mm. the exact environmental cues and i think the same kind of thing is true probably of um, yeah, maybe we could say like the the sensory experience and mm. how that then links to um, the remembering self. Just like either heightened mm. aspects of pleasure or pain become uh, factors for enhanced yeah integration and remembering. Yeah, but the point I was making was like, do you think there's like an inherent 
um, surplus or, you know, there's there's more with the pain and discomfort. Uh, yeah, probably true. Okay, so like, yeah, I think just overall, sorry, yeah, my point, I guess, I think still stands, but you were mm, making yeah. the then second or like previous but secondary to my point that the salient the salience of pain mm. is stronger more visceral um and i would say that's true we are just yeah we're more in, we're more incentivized to move away from a bad life than towards a good life mm. yeah definitely um yeah and that's a cool like inside around learning it's like you you want to le- lean into that discomfort and search for the discomfort around learning yeah definitely shout out to episode four or something yeah the one where you were quiet <laughs> quiet in what way like quiet Wasn't in the speaking. sort of the the audio sense oh. your microphone i think or memory yes. um yeah, basically it's like you had, in order to hear you and I successfully, I had to be too loud and you had to be appropriate or yeah, yeah, you could yeah. just listen to me and then sort of like a muffle in the background. We've come a long way with our production value. <laughs> uh, so I thought um, I would include, oh man, there's a few that I really like here, but I might talk about um, two that sort of relate to software development because... Um, I guess that's the kind of the nicheness that I can bring to the table. Uh, so one of them is object orientation. Hmm. So um, there's a like there's what's known as programming paradigms. Like you have hmm. programming languages, which are the, the like the exact implementation of you know say a language, but there are paradigms that each language also falls into. Hmm. So, um, Lisp is a language and it fits into the functional paradigm. Same with Scheme, um, you know, or Haskell. And then you've got procedural languages and then you've got object-oriented languages. What would be... Okay, so two questions. Do Python and R fall into different paradigms and, like, what are they? Um... So, Python is object-oriented. Um, like, object-oriented and procedural sort of overlap to some extent. Um, like, Python also has functions. So, it's like, I guess mm. it's somewhat of a functional language. But, yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess you would say, like, R is um, procedural, imperative. I, I honestly, like, mm. don't know. Um, I haven't massively understood all the all the paradigms yet um could easily google r and then it would tell us um but the point i kind of wanted to get at is um in the or like the sorry not the procedural or imperative you'd call that i guess like the the structural program or like structured programming paradigm so um in that basically all your your programming artifacts, which are the things, you know, you create in code. Mm. So these are um, like unique or like novel data types, like that are say relevant to your application that you're creating Mm -hmm. as well as the functions and procedures that handle them. Mm -hmm. Like, or just all the things that you create 
in the, say, structured procedural paradigm, if you want some of them to talk to one another, you need to program those abilities into it. Hmm. Okay? Now, if I want... Yeah, one of my programming artifacts to interact with another, I need to give... Um, say the first one an ability to send a message, the second one an ability to receive a message and then like specify mm. where the message is being sent and where it's being <laughs> received from. And yeah. then if I wanted the message to go back in the other direction, I would also need to program those abilities mm. into it. Mm. Okay, with, pro- um, with object orientation, the aim was to make programming, I guess, f- like, because programming is the act of taking like human thought and then translating that into the um you know into something that the computer can understand mm. on the conceptual level we can understand that pretty easily mm. but there's different ways you can then go about it and different ways you can optimize for programming by making say programming be done in a manner that better matches human thought mm. and that was kind of the the quest of object orientation and to just better map onto the world Hmm. so with object orientation um and i was just reading say a book on this last night so this is why i'll use just references from the book um it's by sandy metz um her example was like say you have a you have a spouse okay that is an object Hmm. and you have um a cat Hmm. and you don't it's not programmed into your spouse to um, say step on the cat and it's not programmed into the cat to um, there's this specific function relating to the spouse stepping on it. It's just like Mm. they have various properties on their own and left in an environment, Mm. they will bump into one another Mm. and non specified or non defined behaviors will occur yeah sorry that's probably a very lengthy way of kind of getting to Mm. that point but this has become an interesting um yeah conceptual frame for me to think about is just like Mm. the emergent behaviors of things i guess and the spouse has properties of moving around the house and cat Mm. has a property of not enjoying being stepped on Mm. and that can lead to undefined behaviors such as like face getting scratched and Mm. you know then subsequent fight between yourself and spouse regarding house cat and then Mm. all these flow-on effects Mm. yeah it's interesting so like what do you see as like parallels in you know obviously that's an example but on a say like large-scale society that um you know because I, I don't know if this is like the similar to the nick bostrom idea but one thing i was thinking about the other day was just with you know progress uh about it just being like um like deal or no deal is what i was thinking of where you know like you're you're just going along with more exploring more and more opportunities and creating more and more things but then um you know perhaps there is going to be like that one in 100 obviously the number is going to be a lot larger than that but briefcases you open 
where that's going to be like the that's going to be the, the 200 grand <laughs> yeah yeah exactly is, is that the game where the brief briefcases yeah. right <laughs> yeah where that's going to be the atomic bomb sort of situation um where it's like it's all good and while to continue pushing for progress but every once in a while like you're going to stumble upon this thing that could you know bring a bring about the the destruction of humanity as a whole that's like a large-scale example um but like you know do you see where i'm going like with how that could map on like we keep you know say you keep programming functions into into this entity which is say like a a, a nation state or a, a system and then they're also doing the same thing um but potentially like there's not that like cross talk about what could happen if they conflict and what could happen if say like america like steps on the cat's tail of china does that make sense um, <laughs> i'm stretching it a little bit of, um so maybe like let me go back a little bit i don't think it's surprising that you do so like I guess currently on my TV is paused is a video between um, Tyler Cowen, Patrick Collison and Mark Zuckerberg. Okay. And two of those people are software engineers. And there's obviously a, a selection bias in the sense that I'm watching them. Mm. And like, I am one of the reasons why two software engineers are appearing Mm. on my TV screen. However, Mm. what I would say is on the inverse of that, I don't think it's entirely surprising that people in sort of the software programming world become somewhat thought leaders hmm. because because of what you do in programming is, I guess, the management of complexity and information and what, um, hmm. yeah, what parts of a system should interact with another and the efficient design of interaction Mm. and yeah i think that's extremely comparable to a nation state or a government or a company um so to that point um yeah i think that's kind of interesting now i'm going to possibly try and address one of your questions by not speaking about china and stepping on the cat's tail (laughs) You asked of an example, and I think, say, um, like Facebook slash social media are an example of this. Mm. Like people, um, say, crucify and and condemn, you know, say Mark Zuckerberg for all Mm. the things that Facebook is doing. Mm. But I think this should be looked at in an object orientation sense, Mm -hmm. in that, like, Mark engineered something, Mark slash all of Facebook Mm. um, have engineered something that is then interacting with different objects in just like the freeness of life. Like it didn't, they didn't program the behaviors of like, well, I guess like addictive properties were programmed into Facebook and there Mm. are say, but there's also external forces acting on that object Hmm. not just the internal sort of like defined ones and entirely new results emerge from that Hmm. 
So I think, yeah, we see like object orientation is literally used to design software and then the analysis of how software fits into society, Mm. I think is also better looked at through, say, an object orientation lens than the structured programming sense of like, well, this is all, you know, like, well, it's so common to hear, like Facebook was designed to do this and designed to do that and it's designed Mm. to trick you and it's like, yes, some of that is true, but some of it is just like the random bumping, Mm. bumping into of like one system bumping into another and then some previously undefined transmission of information occurring. Hmm. Yeah, I'm struggling to... Maybe I'm just trying to like put a... Put like this false dichotomy on it of like good and bad, but like what what is there to say about how they think or how you would think about like the unintended consequences of creating something and then how that those random interactions occur? Like is that a large part of... Like that sounds like it would be a large part of it or is that the goal of it is to be able to create more possible space by creating these separate things so like i clearly can't well one i don't even understand the topic um at all in its sort of completeness Mm. in object oriented uh object oriented design slash programming um and i can't relay all the concepts here but yeah like that's, I guess, why it's called a paradigm in the sort of like, this is just how we're going hmm. to think about it. And there's still better and worse ways to do this and achieve hmm. outcomes. Yeah, right. So, um, like something else that, like one of the reasons object orientation is big is because it sort of fits into the agile methodology where... Hmm. Um, like change is going to occur. Mm. It's this, um, and Sandy in the book speaks about how like there's different, um, there's different kinds of programmers and how like, I'm getting way off point now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Now I've forgotten my point. (laughs) Sorry, Um, that went poorly. Um, what were, you make, what were you saying about the how it's uh, it fits in with the agile methodology? Yeah, so like the point of object orientation is like design as a method for improving uh, or mm. preserving optionality. Mm. It's just like you don't design a software system and then it just stays static. Like you mm. have users doing things um, that it's never was never tested for. You have um, the person who contracted you to design it um they want new features Mm. and it's just it's something that evolves Mm. so you design something in an object oriented manner to give it the capacity to be altered adjusted enhanced and improved without Mm. breaking everything (laughs) right okay like you sort of yeah you as i said you use design as a method for improving or enhancing, preserving optionality in the future. Mm, yeah. So that is, are there other paradigms where like if change is needed, that pretty much breaks the function of it? Well, like a, 
a paradigm, I guess, wouldn't survive if that if it was say that definitive. Mm. But object orientation tries to it tries to optimize more so for that ability. Mm. Yeah, nice. I like that. Okay, I've yeah said a, a ton that's probably not <laughs> useful to anyone. <laughs> no, it's interesting. I like it. It's cool. Um, yeah, so then I'll just touch on agile methodology just quickly because I think that's relevant. Um, agile methodology is yeah sort of linked to that, um, and object orientation is very informed by it. It's the sense that say as a software engineer the person who contracts you to do something doesn't actually know they don't know what kind of product they want or they couldn't describe it to you or Mm. you couldn't understand it okay so agile methodology is building like build fast show fast iterate improve yeah and it's you make small changes you show it um to yeah, your contractor, employer, whatever, and then you get feedback on it and then you go back and keep mm. building. It's a big um, rebuttal against grand designs taking place before any yeah. implementation engineering. And this is sort of done for a number of reasons. But mm. yeah, I think this actually um, has relevance for like lifestyle design. I was like yeah, literally definitely. speaking to someone the other day um, and they were like, we're going back and forth about whether they should do something, whether they shouldn't do something and sort of like the agile methodology mm. concept just popped up in my mind. I was like, hang on, you have the capability to do this thing literally next weekend. Yeah. Like do it, mm. get feedback on it, yeah. do your sort of like A-B testing mm. and then go from there. Like if mm. the cost of acquiring information or knowledge about something is low, mm. like just go for it. Yeah. Is that is is it fair to say that this is like the basically like the dominant stance these days, like within businesses, um, that you know, the old way of doing it. I don't know if the old way is like is it waterfall? Is that what they would call it? That's just like antiquated yeah, like waterfall definitely sort of rings a bell. I'm not sure um, what you would call it. I would say yes, agile methodology is very popular um, across the board in business. Mm. Though it, I think, yeah, definitely started. I'm pretty sure in software. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess it's again the uh, like the pushback against like strategic or like five year plans, and yeah. it's like not that they don't have a place. But don't spend six months mapping out your company's next 10 years. Yeah. Which is pretty popular by like board members or like mm. management staff because, mm. it, you know, justifies their yeah, yeah, position. Yeah, yeah. But but still spend some time. Like spend, yeah, say like, like one week mapping out the next three months, something like that. Yeah. And the thing that Sandy sort of goes on about in the book is that you shouldn't be optimizing for a particular future, mm. but you should be like, you can't be optimizing for like knowing what change is going to be asked of your system, like mm. of your software, of your company, whatever. It's like, yeah. you'll run into trouble if you think the future is going to hold that particular thing for you. Yeah, You don't know what the future holds, 
but you can be certain it will demand change of you and of your system. Mm. So that's why it's sort of, she's like, you design to preserve optionality. So that's Mm. speaking to your point. Yeah. Design and planning are still important, Mm. but you need to be understanding that there's going to be unforeseen consequences and things that pop up Mm. and you want to design your system to deal with them as adequately as possible. Hmm. It's probably like a lot more relevant salient these days to be doing it because or that shift has probably occurred because everything is a lot more, I guess, like to do with bits rather than atoms. Like everything is a lot more online. You know, building a business is much more these days about like creating a website rather than finding a lease. You know what it means? Therefore, like everything has moved a lot quicker. Um, so they, therefore you need to be a lot more agile where, where it's like, it's the same thing. It's just like on a quicker scale, I guess. I, I get your point, but I think it's slightly the wrong frame. Don't mm. think agile in regards to speed. Mm. I think agile in regards to maneuverability, maneuverability. Mm. And I would say the pandemic is a better example of that. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there was some unforeseen thing that occurred and like the, the popular phrase that went around the sort of the business sphere was like pivot mm. companies who had preserved their ability to pivot. Yeah. Say they had, cause like it's popular business philosophy to like find your niche, mm. like yeah. look hard for your niche and then go hard on that. Yeah. But businesses that had, um, invested resources in building other departments and mm. profiles in other areas of the economy. Mm. They had preserved their optionality and they were, say, quote-unquote, more agile. Mm. Yeah, I like the parallels to the... Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a good one. Um, I like the parallels to like the career design and the life design stuff. It's very much like the, uh, the Reid Hoffman, Cal Newport um, philosophy of career design of just yeah like i guess what you do want to be building up is that that capital of transferable and useful and valuable skills in the marketplace on a on a maybe a more abstract level rather than a a concentrated level of like you know learning python and mastering python versus you know um, software development as a whole Mm. yeah or just like I would say, um, like, our changing of careers is, mm. like, multiple times that we're, say, like, moving laterally as opposed to, like, vertically mm. or, like, horizontally as opposed to vertically. Like, what we have done is we've foregone, um, you know, promotions and, mm. like, the the benefits that hyper-specialization brings. Mm. However, there's an inverse side to that coin and there is yeah. like a a flakiness and a risk of hyper-specialization. Mm. Yeah. Um, like think of, say, you know, the niche surgeon who works for, for 30 years to get themselves into doing this one really, really particular type of surgery. Mm-hmm. And then within a two-year period, the technology is developed that makes that surgery obsolete. Yeah. Like that person is 
they were probably making you know half a million dollars or more each year for the years leading up to it mm. but they hadn't built an agile lifestyle slash career yeah yeah i'm big on that stay agile yeah cool um we can leave it at that then if you like probably beautiful um not too unshucking that uh thank you everyone for listening as usual uh, much appreciated as always uh give us any feedback that you have um or just leave us a nice five-star rating any parting wisdom yeah can um everyone please go to josh's soundcloud denim, <laughs> denim doof shorts um and actually listen to <laughs> origins don't get put off by the name <laughs> like, shorts. i what do you think yeah i really liked it like oh, i you. i thought it was sick <laughs> um and i had like quite I, that's right i want to share that as my insight of the week and completely forgot um that's funny. i liked uh how do you pronounce it Tab- tableau rasa i guess mm. that's how you say it the blank slate um, yeah, shout out to the blank slate john Locke. i liked it but i think i was blind like i was like oh cool this is my friend doing something mm. and like the, this is a decent crack at it but i thought mm. origins was sick like thank you so Appreciate what i'm saying it is like i think it has um it was of significantly good quality that it like transcended my mm. friendship bias, yeah. bias towards you appreciate it no, that means a lot thank you the, yeah i think the, just the craftsmanship was was yeah. apparent oh speak about consumer crafts and paradox fucking hell <laughs> big time so i just killed you producing it <laughs> yeah well like because there's yeah i mean like we did speak about last i'm like there's so many different permutations of structuring it and like i really i did try and put a lot of thought into like stretching it as 60 minutes of sound rather than song 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 and um i literally had the thought of by the end of it i was like this is actually kind of shit and then you know how it is yeah that's crazy um it was so good so yeah i think much appreciated the 33 minute mark is my favorite favorite bit but i do have do have lots of favorites i'll have to give it back um so yeah everyone check it out like if you are sick of listening to me talk about computer science concepts and then forgetting what i'm talking about um yeah go go consume josh in a different audio format yeah it's uh i guess you would call it like deep afro house I, like I wouldn't this. even put a label on it like just because people will <laughs> yeah, yeah just yeah the moment, what? just listen to it much appreciated thank you for that thanks for tuning in thanks everyone, everyone.